Hey everybody. Thanks for checking out 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric and I greatly appreciate your support. We also appreciate everybody who's been joining us for the fun over at adfreeshows.com. Not only are you getting your shows early and ad free, you're also getting tons of bonus content, uh, some bonus episodes and topics. But the big thing that Eric's had a lot of fun with is doing zoom calls. He's been making a ton of zoom calls and doing like some big conference calls and sort of roundtable discussions all with our supporters over at adfreeshows.com. He has found a way to keep himself busier than ever during the pandemic, but all of a sudden I'm busier than ever before helping listeners just like you save more money than they ever thought possible. Don't take my word for it. Just ask Craig in Wisconsin. He recently saved some money at SaveWithConrad.com. left us a five-star review and he wrote this, the process of refinancing my home was as easy as it could be. Jimmy and the rest of the team were in constant communication with me and I was never left wondering what my next steps would be. I shaved 13 years off of my loan, 13 years. I received a better rate and saved $110,000 over the life of the loan. I just want to say to Conrad and the entire crew, I love you. Listen, this is a real review. Craig is going to save more than $110,000 and you can do this too. And listen, it's not fancy to figure out how we're doing it. We reduced his term from 30 years. He was just two years into a 30 year loan. So he has 28 left. We found a way to make the payments affordable on a 15 year loan. In the process, we cut 13 years worth of unnecessary house payments off. Run the numbers yourself right now. Throw it in your calculator. You know, you've got one 13 years times 12 monthly payments a year. That's 156 payments. Now what's your payment? You probably know it to the penny. He's going to save 110 grand. Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time, but we can even help families with credit scores in the 500s. So what are you waiting for? Let us run the numbers. Find out how much money you can save for free right now at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention you get to skip your next two house payments? If you haven't already, you can skip your June and your July payment. You're done until August 1st. And oh, by the way, we're licensed in more than 40 states. So why wouldn't you do this? Get a quick quote right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, just cruising along at 5,516 feet elevation in the shadows of Carter Mountain here in the Casa de Bischoff recording studio. I think you're in the adfreeshows.com studio there, are you not? Damn. I've been having so much fun on adfreeshows.com. I'm I'm like an addict now. I was like, I can't wait to do another one. I can't wait to do another one. I had so much fun doing that stuff. And, you know, you look, I've, I've said it before, you know, to, to the people that I talk to on adfree. One of the things, you know, I always enjoy about going to, you know, conventions and autograph signings, comic cons, that type of thing is, you know, you get a chance to meet people and you, you hear their stories about, right. you know, what, how wrestling has, you know, shaped their lives and how they used to watch with their parents or grandparents or brothers and sisters and friends and all that kind of stuff and the impact that it's had on them. But, you know, unfortunately at, at comic cons and conventions and things like even like StarCast and so successful and you get so many people, you got to kind of move those people through the line. You know, you can't spend 20 minutes talking to somebody and getting to know them. Whereas at adfreeshows.com, you know, we do. 
and getting to know the people who are supporters at ad free and really really love the the content that that Arn and Tony and Bruce and JR yourself obviously are putting out is really fun. I mean, getting to know these people is really really fun and I enjoy the hell out of it. I'm doing another one this week. We got to promote it hard and and heavy because our fans are absolutely loving it. It's adfreeshows.com. If you were already over there, you would have gotten this show early and ad-free. And you would get next week's show, which is Clash of the Champions 23. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, a little Impact Wrestling today from 10 years ago when we cover Slam Anniversary 2010. But next week, man, it's back to the uh, the roots of 83 weeks. It's WCW. That show went down on June 16th, 1993 at the Norfolk Scope. The main event is Ric Flair and Arn Anderson taking on the Hollywood Blondes. Oh, wow. In a two out of three falls match for the NWA World Tag Team Championship and the WCW World Tag Team Champions. Uh, This is going to be pretty fun. I mean, the Hollywood Blondes have both sets of belts. Arn and Rick are are sort of the, uh, the old school WCW. The Hollywood Blondes trying to take over. Should be fun to watch. Underneath that, we've got Big Van Vader teaming with Sid Vicious and Rick Rude. That's a crew of guys you don't want to mess with. And they're taking on Dustin Rhodes, Sting, and Davey Boy. We've also got the NWA World Heavyweight Championship on the line when Barry Windham is going to defend against Two Cold Scorpio. Lord Steven Regal is going to be in there with Marcus Alexander Bagwell. And how about this for an opener? Ron Simmons and Dick Slater. That's a loaded group of talent right there is it not it's a loaded group of talent and the cool thing about it is is it kind of represents an era of wrestling going back to the end of you know you talk about rick flair and arn anderson being old school wcw which is really interesting to hear in context right but it, it it's such a great mix of talent from different generations and uh i'm looking forward to this one i'm in fact i may go back and watch it right after we're done taping this because that'll be a really interesting show to cover that's what we're doing next week on 83 weeks. And then we're going to wrap up the month of June with a couple of great American bashes. We'll do great American bash 1995, which was a much different show than what we'll do the following week. Great American bash 1996, where Eric, you got a couple of sky miles on that show. I think. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at high altitude on that show. <laughs> I like it. I was on cruise control most of the afternoon and evening. It's going to be a fun show. That's how we're doing, uh, 83 weeks this month. And, uh, we've got some bonus action happening for you over at adfreeshows.com. But without further ado, let's talk about why we're here. Slam anniversary 2010. This one went down on June 13th, 10 years ago at the impact zone in Orlando, Florida. Of course, admission to this show is free, um, but we've got 1100 fans on hand. The, uh, the pay-per-view element compared to the TV element all happening at the TV studio. Could you distinguish one or the other? I mean, did it really matter if, if a pay-per-view was there compared to TV or was it tomato, tomato? You know, that's the one thing I didn't take note of in watching the show. And I, and I hate to keep, you know, beating the same drum, but we, we've all experienced the ramifications of COVID and, and how it's impacted, you know, WWE, AEW, you know, everybody else that's producing a live show right now. And, I, you know, I've been saying for years, decades perhaps, 
that the audience is one of the most important factors in any wrestling show. And nobody ever really pushed back on that. Nobody ever argued about that. But I don't think any of us, including myself, by the way, really understood just how correct that perspective is and was back when I was beating that drum, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I think this show really, this pay-per-view at TNA is a perfect example of what I mean. It's, and we'll cover the show. I don't want to, you know, get too far ahead of myself as far as the matches and things. But if you look at this show as a whole, if you go back to the, the TNA uh, or, or the impact app and, and watch this show, I don't know how anybody can objectively say that this was anything but a great pay-per-view. It may not be the best pay-per-view. It may not have been the most exciting pay-per-view. You may not have walked away feeling, oh my God, this is a company that's really on a roll and this is something that I can invest my time and emotion into. But the reason you don't feel that way, if you didn't, or don't after watching it is because the ambiance, the vibe, the energy, the lack thereof is what kept the show feeling as great as it should have, because there was great talent in the ring. Mm. There was great action in the ring by that talent. There was solid story and great setup. There was all the things you really needed. There were, you know, Jeff Hardy, Ken Anderson, Sting, Rob Van Dam, AJ Styles, you know, Beer Money probably at their peak as a tag team. There was so much great action on this show and great talent on this show, but it still felt like it was really insignificant. Mm. And it felt insignificant as I watched it back preparing for the show because there's just no energy. And the soundstage actually looked pretty good. Yeah. You know, hats off again to to uh, Keith Mitchell and, and David Sahadi and Kevin Sullivan, the director, not the wrestler, and or the producer, not the not the wrestler. You know, and the entire team. There's a big team of people that did a fantastic job producing this show. But you can't hide small. Mm. Yeah, there was 1,100 people there, but you'll notice while you're watching this show that you can hear people in the you know, in the cheap seats, if you will, not that there was a lot of cheap, well, they were all cheap seats. They were free for crying out loud, but you know what I mean? Far, far removed from ringside. You could almost hear them talking during the match. The audio just made it feel so small and insignificant. And I think that's the one thing not to go on a, start off on a soapbox like this, but I, I guess I'm already here, you know, had TNA had the resources and I'm, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm often critical, uh, as I have been when I'm covering things about TNA because I was so disappointed in the missed opportunities along the way and what could have been. And, you know, opportunities are hard to come by, and 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 great ones are really, really hard to come by. And TNA was in a great position to really take their industry or their business within the industry to the next level, but they never made that final commitment. Had they taken the show on the road consistently, you know, they experimented and it worked by the way, when, when they experimented with it, but had this show been in front of 3000 fans, 2000 fans, God forbid, 5,000 fans that were actually 
fans of the show and not just people who were coming over to Orlando because they did every week because there was a pay-per-view. It, it would have made all the difference in the world. And to illustrate the point, I know you've probably gotten up and had a sandwich, used the restroom, and are probably brewing a pot of coffee as I'm going on and on and on. No. So you're welcome. But <laughs> but had they really invested in themselves and been able to, again, I'm going to, I don't know what, I don't know what the business side of TNA really looked like, but man, what a missed opportunity. Cause this show could have been this, this pay-per-view could have been a cat, a launching pad for TNA to do some really big and extraordinary things. It's an interesting time in the company too. We should mention that for the first time since 06, uh, slam anniversary is held in the impact zone. So 07, 08 and 09 were all on the road, but we're back here. Uh, for 2010, this is the eight year anniversary of the company. Um, we should also mention we're coming off of the sacrifice pay-per-view where Rob Van Dam successfully defended his world title against AJ styles here at slam anniversary. RVD is going to be defending the title, uh, against the man that he beat in a matter of seconds in RVD's TNA debut sting, but there's lots of news and notes as we sort of head into this show, including a report from Wade Keller, where he's recapping the sports business journal, where they actually got a hold of Dixie Carter for an interview. And she talked about company financials since it's a privately held company. It's not something that you can just go look up like you can for WWE. Uh, she would say, uh, uh that they're claiming a 75% revenue growth from 08 to 09 mainly from the increase in house show touring quote, our revenues have grown significantly. We're finally getting the momentum we need. And she would also claim people are more aware of us than ever due to the addition of Hulk Hogan. And, um, you know, the big thing that, that everybody's talking about is the live event touring schedule and the idea that this is the reason that they're making more money. But internally, we've heard over the years that wasn't exactly the case. Is this Dixie just trying to put lipstick on a pig to the media here, or what do you make of these comments? Well, Dixie was really good at. I mean, she was a politician, and and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. I mean, she she was really good um, in speaking to the media, but Dixie had a tendency. Like all of us do, by the way, when you're promoting your company, you're promoting your brand, you don't go out there and, 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 you know, dig up dirt on yourself and, 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 and spill your guts about all the challenges you're having necessarily. You know, when you get an opportunity to do an interview like that, you're going to point out the, 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 the highlights of your business. And WWE does it. I'm sure AEW does it. And Dixie Carter did it. And Dixie was really good at it. You know, but having been there, you know, 70% increase in revenues over last year, that's, that sounds really impressive until you look at what those revenues were the year before. Mm. You know, you got to be a little careful about numbers. Politicians use them, you know, business people use them, you know, talking heads in the news media use them. But until you really dig into them and really begin to understand them, you're not able to put it into context and really make a decision. So I think it was really Dixie saying all the right things to promote her business as she should have. That was her role. Um, but I think some of those numbers could have been, you know, slightly misleading until you really dug into them. Yeah. 
I, I get that. We should also mention that, uh, universal comes up. She says universal studios. We're lucky to have them as a marketing partner, but it's very important that you go and bring the show to other people. So she's at least saying, Hey, we love universal, but we know there's a need to sort of get out there and bring the show to the fans. But to your point, that really would have leveled up this pay-per-view. I mean, I, I have to agree it, with that. It, it, it would have, and Conrad, there, there's there's even a, a a level of discussion beyond the obvious, you know, that that Dixie stated, and that we both see, and and most people listening to this probably would agree with in general. But the idea of keeping your show on the road and touring is far more important to the health and well-being of a wrestling company than I think most people even in the industry fully comprehend. And I go back to some of the research and I, I guess I'm a research junkie because I, I just, I, I love it. I love the process of learning things that you wouldn't know or, or, or you wouldn't realize just in the normal course of your business, because all of us make assumptions, you know, I'm sure in your business, you know, in the mortgage industry, there are certain assumptions that, you know, you, you all kind of operate under because that's been the norm in the industry. And then sometimes the the conditions within an industry change and it causes you to reevaluate assumptions that you were very comfortable with not that long ago. And I think one of the assumptions that people make about the wrestling business is that, oh, yeah, touring is just a revenue opportunity. And it is, clearly. I mean, nobody's going to argue about that. You know, done well with a reasonably hot property or even lukewarm property, you know, you can generate significant revenue to touring. It's a proven model. But what's more important than the revenue about touring is the unique relationship your television characters, we'll call them stars, your television stars can develop with the audience when you come live. You know, you don't see the cast of Walking Dead putting on a performance, you know, in in an arena. You know, whatever your favorite television series is, you don't see those people coming to your town and get a chance to watch them perform and, God forbid, shake their hand or take a picture with them or have them look at you while they're in the ring, make eye contact with you and react to something you're saying or doing and make you feel like you're part of their world. That's the power of live touring. And I think that's one of the reasons why wrestling – going back to the beginning of television time has been so successful as a genre and, and still is one of the most successful genres on television today is because it's uniquely positioned 52 weeks a year to not only put out content on television that, that the audience loves and enjoys, but you also come to their neighborhood and you meet them and you greet them or you put on a live event in front of them in a way they feel they get to know you and they've made contact with you in a way that they can't make contact with almost any other anything else they see on TV. Now the exception is sports, you know, but you, know, you don't really get a chance to get too close and up and personal, you know, w- with your favorite local sports teams. 
you know, you, there may be opportunities. But in wrestling, it's 52 weeks a year. Right. In WWE, there was 250, 300 shows a year where fans get that opportunity. And I think that relationship, here's where I'm going with this, the relationship that professional wrestling has with its audience and the reasons, reason it's endured and, and performed so well since the beginning of television time is because of the relationship that you build when you tour live. And revenue aside – or, or lack thereof, it's an important cog in the wheel. And I, and I don't think, you know, we're seeing it now. You know, you're, you're seeing the deterioration of audience and, and because of COVID, you know, largely in my opinion, just as speaking from you know, my personal taste, I, I cannot stand watching wrestling in front of no crowd. Well, there's a lot of people that agree with me, you know. And, and hopefully when crowds come back and that energy comes back, things will be back, you know, to where they were. But I think live touring is going to be a big part of that, of getting things back where it was, not just putting people, you know, in the arenas for television tapings, but taking that show on the road. I think it's undervalued as a strategy and a tactic in growing your brand. That's live touring I'm talking about. And I, I, I think, we're going to see, I hope we're going to see WWE and AEW and NWA and everybody else that's, you know, out there producing wrestling content, get back into the arenas as soon as they can, because that'll build up the business faster than anything. Even if they lose money for a little while in the process, you've got to maintain that relationship with your fans. That's the one thing that wrestling has that no other form of entertainment has is the ability to connect with that live audience, whether they're in Des Moines, Iowa, Detroit, San Francisco, or some small town, you know, in the middle of nowhere. That's a really important aspect of, of this industry. Well, I got to do a run in here and I'm going to do it with some good news. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion, but searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls. So know what you're thinking. Well, what's the good news, Conrad? Well, that's all done now. Thanks to the zebra.com. Listen up. The zebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place where you can compare quotes side by side from over a hundred providers and choose the best for you in just 90 seconds or less. Plus they will never sell your information to the spammers. So you won't get all those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple fast form and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch calls the zebra kayak for auto insurance. The best part of this is it's completely free. You can save up to $670 a year using the zebra.com. So what are you waiting for? By the way, with states reopening and people getting back on the road, the zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest price possible. But that begs the question, how much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at the zebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. Let me spell it for you. T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A dot com slash 83 weeks. Let's talk about something that I was fascinated to read about that I guess flew under my radar at the time. Uh, Meltzer would report that Hulk Hogan has filed a lawsuit against Post Foods, which makes Cocoa Pebbles cereal. This all comes from a television campaign for Cocoa Pebbles. 
which has a cartoon character named bulk boulder. He's got long blonde hair and a Hulk Hogan style mustache. He's, uh, um, got the yellow trunks on. He's got the, I mean, it's, it's Hulk Hogan and it's a blatant freaking ripoff. And the first Meltzer even says the first time I saw the commercial quote, I figured this was a lawsuit waiting to happen if they didn't get his approval. And if they did, the character wouldn't have been called bulk boulder. But Bulk Boulder is a champion pro wrestler, clearly based on the 1980s Hulk Hogan, who in the commercial beats up Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble, and then Bam Bam gets in the ring and destroys the champion, breaking him into little pieces. So, yeah. Do you know how weird that all just sounded, by the way? <laughs> it's like, wow, I just, I forgot just a moment that we were talking about a TV commercial, and I thought, God, that's a weird wrestling angle. <laughs> it, it's unbelievable that they thought they could do this. This was not on my radar. I threw it in my Google machine. And I encourage you to do it or just go over to 83 weeks. We'll get this posted for you to take a look at, uh, holy cow, dude, they're, they're ripping off Hulk Hogan here and it ain't close. No. And you know, here's another thing that to, to get into the weeds just a little bit, because I, I guess part of our audience likes it and part of it goes to sleep, but we'll I'll try to make it fast. You know, one of the things people don't realize is when you have a trademark, you have to protect it. Right. If you become aware that there are infringements or even potential infringements on your on your trademark, and if you, through your lawyers, don't take some kind of action, a, a affirmative action in response to it, that is, in effect, abandoning your trademark. Right. You know, it's, it, it's like, and I, you know, I learned, well, I learned it the hard way really, but in with WWE, when we ended up in the trademark, you know, litigation with them at WCW, I learned a lot about trademark law more than I ever thought I wanted to know. In fact, more than I do want to know, but I also learned a lot in the process of trademarking a couple of my own, uh, properties, uh, one in particular, Buffalo Bill Cody beer and getting the trademark is one thing. And it's a challenge, but maintaining it is, is probably harder in some respects, especially if you've got a hot mark, you know, that people want to lift and, and exploit and, and take advantage of. If you don't protect it, you lose it. So when people, you know, hear about, you know, WWE taking action, you know, that they feel is heavy handed and overly aggressive uh, regarding any of their marks or anybody else in the industry, just know as was the case here with Hulk Hogan that had Hulk Hogan and his attorneys not protected that mark, they could have easily lost Hulk Hogan could have lost the rights to that trademark by not defending it. So I, I don't think that Hulk Hogan was looking for a billion dollar payday or, or, or any of those things. I think he just wanted to cease and desist it and prove to the, you know, USPTO.gov group that he was indeed protecting his mark. It's fascinating to me that they thought they could get away with it. Go look at 83 weeks on Twitter and you'll see these images. I mean, there is no mistaking it. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes when I hear a celebrity is suing for his likeness, I like you probably roll my eyes and say, Oh, whatever. And then I see this and I'm like, Oh, God damn. That's whew, that's blatant. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Conrad, I, I, clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about. I, who is the cereal company? Cocoa po puffs or post. Post cereals, yeah. right? So clearly, I have no insight into the creative process of post cereals in 2010. But my guess is they felt like, oh, this is a parody. Yeah. 
Because once you parody a trademark, once you parody a character and it becomes a true parody, you've got some, you've got some legal ground to stand on. And I'm guessing that some, you know, room full of attorneys looked at this creative and said, oh, no, that's a parody of Hulk Hogan. That's perfectly legitimate. And sometimes it is. And sometimes it's not. And in this case, it wasn't. It's remarkable to me what you can get away with under the guise of doing parody. And I don't know that anybody has pushed that envelope harder than in the adult film industry. Whenever a, a movie goes big box office 10 years ago, it feels like right away there would be some adult film with the exact same name, but they would just put the word not in front of it. And it's just a direct, I mean, almost carbon copy, tongue in cheek, funny, ha ha. Uh, it's remarkable that they get away with it. Yeah, it is. Comedy and, and parody are two, two areas where, um, you can get a lot of runway to get away with shit. Um, and, and it costs a lot of money to fight that stuff, you know, and I, 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 I you know, I'm, I'm fortunately never been parodied. Is that the word parodied? Oh, well, you just asked for it. That's going to happen within the next month now. Yeah. Well, well, I've been, the, I've never been the subject of a parody in a, in a porn and hopefully won't, but <laughs> if, if, if that were to happen, um, my first reaction would be just to fucking ignore it and wait for it to go away as opposed to bringing attention to it and spending a lot of money trying to defend, you know, my likeness or what, whatever trademark issues I felt I might have, which, which I don't, by the way, uh, I've never trademarked myself, <clears throat> but anyway, so much for trademark law. We should get our buddy, Michael Dawkins on, on the line sometime and, and have this conversation with somebody that actually knows what the hell they're talking about. Well, you really want to go to sleep. Let Michael Dawkins start talking about trademarks. Oh, I uh, see. I find it exciting. I love, you know, trademark laws really, really interesting. You talk about loopholes. You talk about laws that were created and, and written in a way to invite more lawsuits. Trademark law is it. I swear to God, lawyers, they're, they spend so much time recreating language and redefining words and twisting things around in ways that creates more opportunity for litigation that it prevents. It's just insane. Let's talk about something else that, uh, makes the news here. Meltzer writes Ross Foreman, who was in the public relations department has been with the company from the start was let go a few weeks ago, although it just became public this past week. It was said to be due to budget cutbacks, but the thing that has people talking about that may have him nailed was something completely out of his control. Among the other things he did was put together the TNA trading cards deal with TriStar, since he's got a legit sports background and he did all the writing for those cards. Everything he wrote had to be approved before it went out. And for the most recent set of cards, the focus of the themes was on TNA taking over Monday nights. Well, the day the cards came back to be shipped out was the day spike moved them back to Thursday. And there was a major office uproar, particularly from Dixie Carter about the cards pushing Mondays. A few were surprised noting that Foreman is super tight with Kevin Nash back to the WCW days and figured Nash would have been able to save him. Uh, what do you make of Ross Foreman here? This is a name that a lot of WCW fans remember from the WCW days. Um, and his time here in TNA comes to an end, supposedly over a trading card snafu. Yeah, I, I clearly wasn't involved in that process or the decision to let Ross go. 
Um, I mean, I don't know how to respond to it because I wasn't involved in it. Right. Um, uh, Ross, you know, I'm certainly familiar with Ross from his work in WCW. Um, I, I worked with him in TNA. He's a hardworking guy, very smart guy, had great relationships and, and was very committed. You know, I didn't always agree with some of his ideas, but big freaking deal. You know, I'm not sure there's anybody who I would agree with all of their ideas or, or, or would agree with anybody's. You know, we all have different ideas and some, some we relate to and some we don't, but Ross was a hardworking guy. And, um, I was surprised actually, because, you know, Russ did have great, he had a great Rolodex. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was a little wired into an industry that internally TNA had no access to. So letting go of somebody like that was, uh, was surprising. Let's talk about something else in the news in this era. It's a Jeff Hardy situation. His trial is scheduled for the past week and it was delayed again this time until July. Of course, he's got, uh, quite a few charges going. This is all because he was arrested back in September, uh, just a couple of weeks after finishing up with WWE, they found a lot of pills and, uh, some steroids, but Jeff Hardy, we know has pulled the nose up and, uh, he's doing good these days, but this has been something that plagued him off and on for several years. Were, were at any point you guys nervous about the impending lawsuit situation, or is this something you're going to monitor and try to just play day by day? Again, uh, I think Dixie and, and, you know, guys like Dean Broadhead and, and, and some of the other executives in TNA were probably more concerned about it than I was. It was again, not being involved with the business side of the TNA business. Um, you know, I was certainly aware of it. I had my own opinions about it. Um, pretty high profile stuff. It wasn't just that he was caught using or, or, you know, they pulled him over and he had some things he shouldn't have had in his car. This is distribution type stuff. This is serious, potentially federal crimes. And, um, I was, I was concerned about it, but I wasn't in a position to have to worry about it too much other than, geez, I hope this doesn't cause a blowback on the business. Right. That's all I could do. I mean, there was nothing in my role. I, I, I couldn't be actively participate in whatever decisions or policies or positioning that TNA was taking as a result of this. Let's, uh. Keep it moving here. Let's talk about Ric Flair. Meltzer would write Flair's contract was a one-year deal calling for 52 dates. Considering he's been on every TV and every pay-per-view, they're running through the dates early and will have to ink him to a new deal if they want to keep him. Uh, one person noted that one of the reasons for looking at Reed Flair is that Reed is si if Reed is signed and put on the road, or for that matter, just used on big shows, they figure it'll be easier to get Flair to agree to add dates to the deal without charging them a difficult price for the added shot. Oh, uh, who's, who's saying this nonsense? Meltzer. Oh God. Uh, okay. Figured. What, what, why, why that reaction? Cause it had not, that, it's just, uh, if that was a conversation or a thought process within TNA, I never heard it. Right. I mean, I talked to Dixie all the time. I was working with Ric Flair, uh, very closely at the time. Was instrumental in getting Rick to come into TNA for crying out loud. Sure. So if any of if 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 there was a syllable of truth 
to anything that Meltzer said, I probably would have at least heard of it. And I'm only hearing about it now. This is really, it's just, it's typical. But go on. I'm not going to get upset. I'm, I promise the listeners. I know some people tune in. Some people actually tune in to 83 Weeks. And I get it on my, on my my Twitter feed all the time. They love when I rant on that piece of garbage, Dave Meltzer. Oh. They love when I expose him to be the fraud that he really is. And that he's sucking people into subscribing to his dirt sheet by trying to convince them that he knows things he doesn't really know. I, they love it when I rip the veneer off that piece of garbage that he really is. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to remain calm. I'm going to answer your questions with, with, with thought and, and process and, and in an aura of calm to share information, not to incite or provoke. That's my goal for today. Let's see if you can help me do that. Conrad. All right, let's talk about what Meltzer wrote. <laughs> uh, Scott Hall did appear at his arraignment on June 9th after his arrest on drunk and disorderly and resisting arrest charges from the late night of May 13th, two nights before the last pay-per-view. He has pleaded not guilty. Apparently, the Hitching Post bar in Florida outside of Orlando had the entire incident filmed, and he would later write in The Observer, Scott Hall was officially let go due to the arrest getting out. While some were talking double standard because Jeff Hardy has far more major charges. The thing is, aside from Hardy being a bigger current star, and there's always inconsistent standards in wrestling, Hall really is in a lot rougher shape than Hardy. They decided to strip the band of the tag titles as opposed to having Kevin Nash and Eric Young defend and lose them. And, uh, this is major news because it feels like yet another, uh, bad spot. Scott Hall to okay. be in. Okay, so let's just take that. Let's just take that one. Now, again, I'm for those of you who love for me to go off on a rant, this is not going to be that. I am just going to calmly and efficiently rip that observation by Dave Meltzer to shreds. And it's really simple. At the core of Meltzer's statement, it was yeah, there's double standards in wrestling, but Scott Hall is really in worse shape than Jeff Hardy. Are you fucking kidding me? A guy that gets a drunken disorderly outside of a bar and it happens to be on tape is in worse position legally than a guy who, when they raided his home, had a shit ton of scar, drugs. Scar, scar face levels of drugs available for distribution. Where? What the hell? Come on. Even a reasonably reasonable thinking person who spends their 20 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever it is on Meltzer's crap should be able to see through that and see the agenda. That's, that's the thing. You see the agenda. That's what Dave Meltzer does. He writes his agenda. And there's nothing farther from the truth than to suggest that Jeff Hardy was in a, in, in a better position legally or any other way, by the way, than Scott Hall was at the time. That's just stupid. I think by now everybody listening knows that Eric knows how to throw a kick. Uh, Eric uh, will often be critical of people throwing some karate moves here on the show because he has a martial arts background. I think a few people even found footage of him on like an old ESPN 
broadcast uh, kicking some ass but that was a long time ago we must admit uh, but i don't know if you've been noticing but all of a sudden if you've been checking eric's social media eric's in great shape he found a fun way to get in shape and if you've ever done boxing or kickboxing or thought about learning how maybe you've been too busy or you just couldn't access a good boxing gym you got to do what eric did you got to check out fight camp they provide everything you need to start boxing from home. And that means amazing at-home boxing equipment, along with new boxing and body workouts released every single week. It's the perfect at-home workout for anyone, for men, for women, even families. It's great for all fitness levels. You're going to love it. Or how about this? It just feels good. We should also mention that Fight Camp brings the boxing gym to you with a mix of cardio and conditioning for a full body workout. It comes with all the gear you need, the best freestanding punching bag on the market, great boxing gloves, quick hand wraps, and their unique punch tracking sensors that show you real-time progress and stats on any Apple device. This is a huge deal. We should also mention it's great for kids. Fight Camp even offers kids gloves uh, because it's meant to be enjoyed by the whole family. It's one of the only workouts that kids can actually get involved in unlike weight machines or cycling or other at-home gear that's maybe not sized for kids or sometimes too dangerous. You can also watch yourself reach new milestones and bring that goal-crushing mentality to every part of your life. And this has been a big hit with CEOs and, and business types because they're so competitive. Well, that's what's fun with this. You've got a leaderboard with thousands of others. You can also learn from six highly qualified trainers ranging from you know pro MMA fighters to even the mother of two kickboxing world champions. Uh, this is the perfect high intensity interval training too. workouts are structured like traditional boxing rounds. So three minutes of intense boxing and body weight exercises, and then one minute of rest. And as we said earlier, it's for all fitness levels. They've got access to more than 400 different workouts. So no matter your skill or your current fitness level, you're going to be good. And they've got four new ones going up every single week. But the cool thing is fight camp helps get you engaged and focused and in the zone. You're going to learn a new skill and then continuously get better. And it's, it's super fun. Maybe you're new to boxing. They've got a 12 week starter program that teaches you the fundamentals of boxing and you get a great workout every time, but check this out Buy now and pay later. That's right. Use a firm financing to get your gym right away and then make easy monthly payments. And the gym is yours to keep at the end of your term. And we should mention if you're approved for financing, you're going to pay less than a hundred dollars a month, which is cheaper than almost every boxing gym. Plus you'll save on the commute and gas. And since you have uh, up to five accounts per household, you can get a full boxing gym for the whole family and under 20 bucks a person. And right now fight camp is offering flexible financing for as little as 0% APR. And as a limited time offer, you can try fight camp for 30 days with their money back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's right. Try fight camp for 30 days. And if you don't love it, they'll refund your money. Train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results. Go try fight camp for 30 days. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. No argument from me. Let's talk about, um, Jeff Jarrett, he's in the news because he does an interview with Brian Fritz talking about the move back to Thursday. He says the TNA fan, the TNA watcher wanted us on Thursdays. 
They spoke their mind and they wanted us on Thursday. So we would be foolish to stay on Mondays for a number of reasons for numbers and for our focus groups. He pushed that it's going to be a three hour block starting in a few weeks. I mean, when you go back to Thursdays is, does this feel a little defeating or did I mean, is this something going in that you were like, eh, I'm not going to get my hopes up that it's going to work, but it would be cool if it did. It was neither one of those. If, you know, we go back and to the archives, when we talked about going to Monday nights on, on with TNA on 83 weeks, you know, the idea was to give us more exposure. The idea was to plant a flag. The idea was to create awareness of a brand that really needed awareness. And if it happened to have worked, which nobody thought it would coming from a soundstage with six or eight or 700 people on a regular basis was possibly going to compete with the magnitude and the scope of, of Monday night raw in front of five, 10, 15, 20,000 fans sometimes live where, whereas, you know, TNA was in, in the little sterile shoebox of a soundstage. Nobody thought or should have, should have thought that that was going to be competitive but that's not the reason we did it. So, um, uh, as far as moving back, I think Jeff, it, much like Dixie, is going to position that, especially when you're talking to a trade magazine, you're going to position that in the most positive light that you possibly can. I'm, I'm going to take the other side just for a moment, you know, as and, and not that I was campaigning for this, not that I was fighting for it. I don't think I even really articulated it to, to spike execs or even people within TNA, but let's just, let's just do what if let's do a hypothetical since I don't like them. I'm going to try one on, um, hypothetically had TNA said, okay, we're going to do this. And by the way, you could, you could probably plug in AEW in this conversation anywhere along the line and kind of be the same point. Let's, if we're going to compete, if we want the majority of the market share for the wrestling audience, let's go where the wrestling audience is. Right. Does that make sense? Like if you were going to open, if you decided you wanted to open up Conrad's hamburger stand, would you put it out in the middle of freaking nowhere? hoping that people would, you know, find you or would you put it right across the street from McDonald's? Because people are coming to that intersection. They're already hungry. They've already made up their mind. They want to buy a burger and oh, wow, there's this new thing right across the street. Which would you do Conrad? Yeah. You're going to go right across the street. Well, you're going to, I mean, that's the obvious thing, right? Right. Now we're, we're TNA and I'm not going to call it a mistake because Again, it was a big financial commitment, and they may not, I repeat, may not have had the resources to actually do it. Or possibly they did have the resources and chose not to. We'll never know. But in either case, had TNA decided, okay, we're going to hold out, and Spike, by the way, who was a great partner, and based on my experience in dealing with executives at Spike, probably would have lined up to support it if there had been a plan in place and a commitment in place. But had TNA said, screw it, we're going to do it. We're going to go head to head on TV and we're going to, we're going to take the show on the road. So when we go to Des Moines, Iowa, or when we go to Huntsville, or when we go to Jacksonville, or when we go to wherever, you know, Denver, Colorado, 
to produce the show, it's going to be live in front of a real audience. I think the outcome would have been different. I'm not suggesting, okay, all of you out there having freaking seizures and having brain bleeds right now because you're hearing me say this and so you think in, in your mind that I'm suggesting that TNA could have overtaken WWE. The answer is no. It's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is had TNA had the resources or had been willing to commit the resources to commit to touring their live TV show in front of a live crowd and doing it head to head against Monday Night Raw, the outcome could possibly have been different. That's all I'm saying. Let's, uh, let's talk about ODB. Whose real name is Jessica. She quits on uh, June 14th. She's only 32 years old here. Meltzer would write. She had made a lot of noises of late about being unhappy with what had happened to the women's division. She was not a favorite of management and hadn't been used well with the new regime, which valued television model looks above unique charisma. The same reason she never got signed by WWE. Even whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's from Dave Meltzer again. Yep. So does Dave know, did he conduct an interview with ODB or are there references from ODB citing her issues or is that just Dave imagining them? Uh, I don't know if she spoke to him or probably not. So this is probably just Dave doing what Dave does, which is making up a bunch of shit that sounds like he knows what he's talking about when he really doesn't. Okay, let's move on. She'd been with the company for a little over two and a half years and recent weeks. She talked about loving wrestling, but it being time to make a change and wanting to get into acting. Um, what do you remember about ODB's time coming to an end? Not much, uh, not much at all. I mean, I, I, I always got along with ODB. I just dug her as a human being. Right. Um, she had a unique character. I pushed hard for her later on. She must've left and come back because I remember working with her quite a bit, um, after 2010 and I was a big fan of hers. She, she was, she was great. But as far as her relationship with TNA management in 2010, um, I, I was not really part of that. So I don't know what those issues would have been as far as her getting into acting. I love her. I think she's a great human being, but yeah, I don't like the way they're treating me here in TNA. So I want to get into acting that's more power to you, girl, go for it. But that's, you know, that's like me saying, Conrad, I'm kind of tired of doing this podcast with you. I know it's really successful. I know I have fun doing it, but I want to become an opera singer. I really do. I, I, I want to become Pavarotti. I just do. It's kind of a big leap. Well, let's talk about the other leap that TNA was involved in the one to Monday night. And now back to Thursday, here's what the ratings were like their first few weeks back. May 13th is a 0.93 rating. May 20th is a 0.95 rating. May 27th is a 0.96 rating. So it's been up, up, up. And then June 3rd, it's down to a 0.87, but it bounces back on June 10th with a 0.99. So with the one-off of the June 3rd episode, even though the ratings may not be exactly what you guys are hoping for, it's at least trending in the right direction, right? 0.93, 95, 96, 
a little bit. Yeah, like people that. listening to this will have a hard time understanding uh, or, or, or knowing how to put this into context because this was back at a time and Meltzer's reporting was back at a time where, you know, everybody was reporting ratings and not viewers. Mm. So the apples, the apples and the oranges have kind of changed in a way Fair when fact. it comes to reporting numbers. Now, the 0.93 or 0.98 or whatever you want to call it, I don't know how many households that represented in cable at that time, but I'm guessing it exceeded a million. Probably in the million one, million two, million three range was the was the average. I'm guessing, could be wrong, go ahead, you know, beat my ass on social media if I am, I'll take it, I'm a big boy. But I'm guessing it's somewhere in that, that neighborhood. But here's what's more important. And I would like to see more of this analysis. You know, everybody, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come clean here. Uh, I do read online peripheral wrestling news sites. I do, and there are some that I have a lot of respect for. Um, and in in the people that write them, uh, Bruce Mitchell, being one of them, PW Insider, Wade Keller, being another, um, Ryan Satin. Another, and and there are others that that fall into that category because I think the 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 news, the wrestling news. I hate to call it news, but the wrestling news sites. Can't think of a better word right now. Um, are doing a better job of defining facts, information, and editorial in opinion, and I think that's a good thing. Because everybody's entitled to an opinion. Everybody can, and some people may really like hearing your opinion, or some people may not. But the issue that I've always had, uh, Sean Sean Ross Sapp is another guy that I've really just recently um, become familiar with, that I have a lot of respect for. It's okay to express your opinion until you start diluting and conflating your opinion with information you're presenting as fact to give yourself credibility. And that's one of the things I always bust on about Meltzer is he does it so often. It's predictable. But there are people out there that I do read and, and have a lot, of re, a lot of respect for. So I, I just want to make that clear. I'm not busting on all you know, news sites or news sheets. I'm, I'm busting on the ones that try to present a picture and a point of view based on fact that is purely an opinion. Let me read something that you said that I think is going to get a lot of people, uh, to giggle because you've said it on the show a lot here. And this comes from a Meltzer recap, but you did an appearance on a Monday night mayhem radio show. And on the issue of pushing older stars ahead of former TNA stars, you said, I have to say this, and this may piss some people off in TNA, but I hate the term homegrown talent. I do. We're not, I still do. We're not selling vegetables here or freshly made pies. This is about creating awareness. Our survival, our ability to grow our audience and appeal to a broader audience. Isn't about appealing to the same people who've been watching this. And quite frankly, that audience hasn't grown all that significantly over the last four five or six years, or were you putting, you probably wouldn't be talking to me right now. This is about growing and expanding the audience. You got to grow the brand. And you do that by bringing in people, whether they're movie stars, television stars, or anything else who have a broader appeal because they've been out there in front of other people on a bigger, broader audience than perhaps the talent you already have with the show. 
That's not at all a knock on the talent that TNA currently has, but it does reflect the need that in order for TNA to grow, you have to bring in people who have broader appeal worldwide. And Meltzer would say that all makes sense on paper, even though it didn't end up happening that way. Why didn't it happen that way? It goes and and, and Meltzer, whether he knew it or not, when he wrote it, um, well, he couldn't have known it because I'm making the point now in, in 2020. He just confirmed everything that I said earlier about making the commitment to take that show on the road and to feel bigger and more important and more significant to your television audience by doing so. Without that, and we're seeing it now, We're for the first time in his life, Meltzer's right about something, but he didn't even know he was right. He's absolutely correct, and I stand by every syllable, every vowel, every consonant. Of, of of what I said in that interview, it you 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 can't grow by saying by staying still. You're either growing or you're dying in the world of entertainment. There is, you know, and it's one of the reasons why I you know I'm pointing out certain things about the current product across the board. Not picking on any one company, but when you see your audience flatlining. When you see them holding steady, it's it's called flatlining, and you know, it, you're not you're not showing any growth, and in fact, you're showing a deterioration in your audience. You have to address that. You have to change that. You're either going to grow or you're going to go away. And in TNA's case, yeah, they had some numbers that they could pat themselves on the back with, and they should have. They had achieved a lot. I don't want to come off like the guy that's constantly bashing TNA. They did a lot of things right. But what didn't happen overshadowed what did. What didn't happen is they didn't take that next step. They didn't commit to touring. They didn't commit to to, to their television show in a way that they should have beyond just bringing in talent. I've said this a million freaking times before I heard this comment by, by Meltzer. You know, TNA proved that it's not necessarily only a talent-driven business. They brought in Sting. They brought in Kevin Nash. They brought in Scott Hall. They brought in Jeff Hardy. They brought in Kurt Angle. They brought in Mick Foley. Come on, who else? They brought in Booker T. Who else did they bring in before Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff came along? You know, it, and, and it didn't really change anything. It, it Talent is so critically important, and my, my, my point of view in that interview was absolutely correct. But if you bring these people in and you don't follow that up with the ability to expose it to a larger audience and you're just bringing in talent for the sake of bringing in talent, it doesn't work. How many – God, if I had a nickel – now I probably need more than a nickel. If I had a $10 bill for every time I've said it in an interview – that TNA could have dropped John Cena and an undertaker from a helicopter into a TNA ring and it wouldn't have made any difference unless they followed it up with everything else you need to do to really take advantage of that. Okay. Here's something we can all agree on. Like if it's in your mailbox, it's probably depressing. Like 90% of the time is a depressing place. There's like bills, a bunch of dumb coupons. You're never going to use some stupid political flyers. You don't want once a month though. I've got something to look forward to. I got something to be stoked about. It's because my box of awesome is coming from bespoke post. 
and bespoke post sends guys only the best stuff every month. And no matter what you're into box of awesome has you covered from style and grooming goods to barware, cooking tools, outdoor gear, box of awesome has carefully built collections for every part of your life. And you've heard me talk about it here on the show for a long time. The weekender bag. It was so awesome. Cassio kid even signed up. He had to get one. I got this awesome knife. I got this killer flashlight. I've gotten lots of really cool stuff. Eric, meanwhile, he enjoys making cocktails. You've heard of him talk about that uh, aging kit he got. I think he also got like a, a bathroom bag, which was just phenomenal. Uh, I think they call it a classy dop kit, man. They're way classier than I ever would be, but they're making me look cooler than I really am because I know that I need to go to bespoke post. I need this box of awesome. Now to get started, you've got to take the quiz for yourself at boxofawesome.com, and your answers are going to help the guys and gals over there pick the right box of awesome for you. We should mention they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories, and it's free to sign up. You can skip a month or even cancel any time, but you don't want to do that. I mean, each box only costs 45 bucks, but it's got more than $70 worth of gear inside. So not only are you getting a bunch of great stuff, you're getting that a great deal. And right now you can get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the promo code 83 weeks at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com and use our promo code 83 weeks to get 20% off your first box. We can't thank boxofawesome.com for sponsoring our podcast enough. They've been with us for years here and it's because you guys are loving the gear that you're getting from them. Find out what Eric and I already know. It's that boxofawesome.com is the place to be. It's going to make you look cool. It's going to be one less thing for you to worry about. And it's going to give you something to look forward to in that mailbox. So why not get 20% off your first box? Go to boxofawesome.com and use that promo code 83 weeks. Oh my goodness. What's the matter, Connor? Why don't you, did I, did I bore you or did I say something you disagree with? I just, I just, I'm, I don't know. I'm a little disappointed that TNA didn't, I don't know. Even now, like when you and I cover the show here, uh, or shows from that era, you know, we get comments on the Twitter. like, Oh, I'm skipping this one. Like there's such an aversion to TNA. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. Like. You know, WCW, I mean, as you know, really had some terrible creative at different times in 2000 and 2001, just not great stuff at all, but we're still able to look back sort of with rose colored glasses and remember the good times from WCW, or at least I am. And it feels like so many fans are just not capable of that. It's almost become, I don't know. It's it's, I mean, it's the best way to describe it is LOL TNA. I mean, that's what everybody's, it's just very dismissive. And they had so much momentum and so many things going their direction. And, and somehow to this day, they're still around. And I mean, they don't even get covered in the observer. Like nobody's talking about them. It's just, and I don't think it's necessarily fair. And you and I have, have really had a good time, or at least I have digging through this impact plus app. I'll agree. It's not the best app ever, but there's so much content on there that you'll just stumble into some really great stuff. And it sort of now just gets swept under the rug. All the great stuff they accomplished. I don't know. It's disappointing. It feels like what could have been every time we talk about these shows. 
Well, and that's one of the reasons why I, I really – and I'm grateful to you for picking this show to do because oftentimes I hear myself talk or I'll go back and I'll listen to a clip of something that I said on a show. And it's like I'm just speaking with venom when it comes to, to TNA. And I don't mean to do that. It, it, it does happen. And I, I get angry about certain things and some things just mystify me to this day. But my, my feelings about TNA – are more about missed opportunity than they are about personal anger or issues on a personal level. You just, I mean, I know, you know, you, you brother, you, I mean, anybody that's in business knows how hard it is to create a real opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you got TNA in business with Viacom. And by the way, I'm not speaking out of school here when I say Viacom was so Spike TV in particular, Kevin Kay and, and Scott Fishman, Kevin Kay in particular was so supportive of TNA, so supportive, and to not fully take advantage of that opportunity, that I could see that soon after I got there. It's like, come on, people, come on, you've got one of the most powerful media companies in the world anxious to spend their money on you when they don't have to, according to their contract. They're anxious to create marketing plans for you. That is really not their job. Your job is to market your own company, but you're not doing it. So they're willing to do it and spend a lot of money in the process. It's and, and at, 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 at the, here's, here's the big one for me. And this is maybe not fair. And, and I want to admit that here. I may not be being fair to TNA executives that were in place at the time, but there was a moment in time and fans will remember when, um, what was the UFC, uh, reality show that was on spike? I keep the forgetting the name of it. The ultimate what fighter. Was, okay. When ultimate fighter, which had been on spike TV for so long left, it created not only did it create a programming void, but you have to, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be careful how I say this because I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but my, in my discussions with Viacom executives, they were not only angry about losing the content. They, they recognized clearly and were angered by the fact that for all intents and purposes and, and, Spike TV built UFC. UFC was losing their ass, losing their ass until Ultimate Fighter came along. That reality show changed everything for UFC. No, I'm not saying it was the only thing. Don't get me wrong. Don't go rushing to your freaking Twitter, you know, and tagging Dave Meltzer and say, see what this idiot says. The only reason that, you know, tough enough mattered was, you know, because, you know, UFC would have been nothing if it wouldn't have been for tough enough. I'm not saying that. Put your freaking Twitter down, dude. Z or dudettes. Not that we have a lot of dudettes here. This is kind of a <laughs> testicle. This is kind of a testicle festival here on 83 yes, weeks. Yes, it is. But there was a point in time when Viacom executives fully recognized that 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 reality show really catapulted the UFC business model. And they realized when it left, when Ultimate Fighter left and went over to Fox, they woke up one morning and went, wait a minute, we just built this massive company that UFC had become 
Um, and they just left us in the dirt and we got nothing. And there was a moment in time when, now I heard this, I'm not making it up. I'm not assuming it. I'm not reading into it. I heard it. Viacom was like, look, from now on, we're going to carry this kind of content. We're going to own a piece of it. Don't believe me. Bellator. Yeah. They bought Bellator for the for that very reason. They went screw it. If we're going to put our if we're going to if if we're going to use our television platform to build a brand, we need to own a piece of that brand. I ask you, was there ever ever a better opportunity for TNA to hook up with Spike TV who was already in love with the product? And say, hey, why don't we why don't we joint venture this? Why don't you bring all of your assets to the table, Viacom? We'll we'll make you a part owner in the business and we'll really grow this thing. Because with you as a partner, we can accomplish things that we might not be able to accomplish without you. Kind of like, you know, UFC did. Right. Why wouldn't that why wouldn't you do that? That's to me the biggest thing. The biggest thing. Do I care that they screwed me out of a hundred grand? No, I don't. I really don't. By the time you take taxes out of it, I would have had to pay a lawyer to collect it and all the other stuff. It would have been like, you know, two weekends of sushi for me. So it really doesn't matter in the, in the scheme of things. I'm not even angry about that. But what I, what I get angry about, and it's not personal, just God, what a missed opportunity that was. Right. And in fairness, full disclosure, who knows if it would have happened or could have happened, but I know that there was, let's just say resistance, ideological resistance on the part of many within TNA to that concept because I pitched it. It's uh, fascinating to think, man, what could have been, um, let's talk about something else that could have been Wade, uh, or I'm sorry, Dave would write Dixie has been calling Paul Heyman about coming in for the ECW angle and taking over creative control of the company. <laughs> The pitch is that if he comes in, Vince Russo will walk away from creative, but stay with the company. In other words, be there to replace him when things eventually go south. <laughs> Bischoff would be there to help create new programming. And Spike has even in, been involved with the talks right now. Heyman is working on marketing Brock Lesnar. He has two book projects he's working on. Plus he has a creative agency. He's not been offered the Dana white position, which is full control plus 10% ownership. Although he would not want to be the public face of the company and be upfront like white, but the behind the scenes guy, but the issue isn't the booking booking alone may make TNA better, but it won't turn the company around. You'd need a complete turnaround when it comes to branding, positioning and marketing as a viable alternative product. Uh, you'd have to also create new stars and of course, get them to cross over. This is, uh, that sounds, that sounds pretty easy. Doesn't it? When Dave says it. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Well, I mean, I think the the gist is, I think a lot of, you know, people inside the wrestling bubble, certainly fans, and maybe sometimes who folks, even who work in the industry, they think if, if business is down, oh, well, we just need a new booker, but you know, coming up with who's going to come up with the storylines and who's going to lay out matches. It's not always all there is involved. I mean, you can have some of the, I mean, let's go back in time. Once upon a time, ring of honor had arguably the best in ring action in the entire world. 
and they didn't have the right positioning or branding. They didn't have crossover stars, et cetera, et cetera. So they and they weren't making the commitment to exploit what they had. Yeah. And, and they weren't making that commitment because they didn't have the financial resources. And that's sort of the, there's different levels to this shit. So there's the ring of honor. We've got the best in-ring work in the world, but nobody really knows who we are. And we can't sell more than, you know, six or 800 tickets or whatever it is at the time. Uh, but we have bell to bell, the absolute best wrestling around. And then you've got impact. Well, we can get 1100 fans to come in and watch it for free and we can pop a decent little rating and we've got tons of stars. And then you've got WWE that everybody is sort of striving to be maybe not from an in-ring or television standpoint, but from a revenue standpoint. And it just feels like for whatever reason, we're never going to mix ring of honor is not ever going to level up to the impact level and impacts never going to make it to the WWE level. And that has nothing to do with who's setting the matches up and don't get me wrong. That's an important piece of it. But I think what Dave is trying to explain here in this, this write up about Heyman is, Hey, he may come in and, and make the product awesome. And it'd be a tremendously fun show to watch, but that doesn't mean all of a sudden they're going to be competition for WWE because they have better creative. And I would agree with that as much as, you know, I, I, I relish in, in bask in the glow of beating up on Dave for the stupid shit that he says, there's nothing wrong or, or incorrect about what he just pointed out. I'm surprised he doesn't point that out more often. You know, I think he probably did in this case because he, I'm guessing, I don't know this for a fact, but, uh, he has a relationship or had a relationship with Paul Heyman and, and in a way was covering for Paul, you know, had Paul taken the job because, you know, Paul knew, what do you think Paul didn't want to be the face of the company? Cause he's shy. Lord, I love that you just pretended like you didn't know what their relationship was. Like I haven't read enough quotes about Paul Heyman on this show over the years for you to know without question that Paul Heyman and Dave Meltzer talk, come on. You know, I'm going to let that one pass, (laughs) (laughs) but he does. It's obvious. (laughs) Let's, uh, let's mention something else that's in the news here. That was a bit of a bungle and became sort of par for course with Dixie. You know, Dixie did a lot of great things for a lot of people in TNA, but there was a drawback that she had with fans every now and again, and it would be stuff like this. In an attempt to hype the show, Dixie Carter claimed in midweek that there would be an announcement that would change wrestling history forever. Uh, Of course, she was crying Desmond one too many times. She talked about how excited she was and couldn't sleep and how Kevin Kay of Spike TV thought it was big. Then the night before the big show here at a party, she changed her story to that. The big surprise would be evident in a few weeks and there would only be a minor surprise on the show, but it was sort of teased that there's going to be, uh, some sort of major movement or change or happening on this show. That's going to change wrestling forever. And it's a Tommy dreamer run in. Yeah. That was kind of a bad habit that, that Dixie had. She was so good. You know, in talking to the media, and she is charming, as charming can be, and she's very, very bright. So it's easy for her to go out and say these things, and in her mind, think that they're actually going to have the desired effect. What she doesn't realize is that you can only do that kind of thing every once in a while. And when you when you come out and you make a promise to your audience, well, and this is, I mean, this is basic marketing. You learn this your freshman year in college if you take marketing 101. You know, be careful what you promise your customers. Right. 
because if you get them excited and you under deliver the next time you try to make a big announcement or promise them something that should have significance, they're not going to buy it. Right. And Dixie made that mistake so many times, you know, and it's just her nature. She's an entrepreneur at heart. You know, she really wanted to believe that this would make all the difference in the world. In her heart, she had convinced herself that bringing in Tommy Dreamer for a run-in was somehow going to be the biggest thing to happen in professional wrestling that season. She really believed it. But, man, I, I think that was one example of, the biggest news in professional wrestling, the biggest news in TNA history, the biggest event in TNA history, the most exciting night in TNA wrestling, the most dangerous event in TNA wrestling, the most this, the most that, the most what? Shit! After a while, you just become numb to it, yeah, because they didn't they didn't deliver on any of it or very little of it, I should say. What would your family do with an extra one hundred and eight thousand dollars? That's a problem that our listener Jacob out in Colorado has now. Thanks to SaveWithConrad.com, he recently saved money with us over at SaveWithConrad.com. Gave us a five-star review and wrote this: Our previous mortgage company made each step of the process difficult, but Jimmy took it in stride and made it happen. He was able to lock us in at one and a half percent less than we were at, and saved us hundred and eight thousand dollars over the life of the loan. Guys, that's unbelievable. Jacob saved more than 108 grand, but how much can you save? It's free to find out right now. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh, by the way, did we mention no house payments for two months? And we're licensed in more than 40 states. So what are you waiting for? Start saving money today at SaveWithConrad.com. Well, in in the story, just so you know, it, it's going to wind up being there's going to be an ECW reunion show for TNA. We're going to call it Hardcore Justice. You know, five years prior to this, it was a a, a big deal when the WWE did it uh, and called it One Night Stand. So they're hopeful that well, maybe we can do something like that. Uh, let's keep it moving. Let's get to the pay per view. Mike today and Taz are on commentary, and we should mention. The first match, woof, it's a barn burner. It's four stars. They get plenty of time. It's Kurt Angle and Kazarian. Kazarian looks like a different person here. Definitely uh, thicker, definitely more hair. Kurt Angle also looks like a different person. He's got some stubble going. Uh, he looks like quite the badass here. And the storyline is uh, Angle has to win matches to move from number 10 in the rankings uh, to the number one spot. Meltzer would say the crowd was hot and never came fully close to this level for the rest of the night. There is a lot of great stuff happening in this, um, four stars. I guess the problem in, in this Meltzer would write the inherent problem up until that point is no matter what Kazarian does, nobody in the crowd thinks he has a prayer of winning. Uh, of course, what we're talking about is when, uh, angle. Uh, and, and, and Kazarian are putting on a barn burner like this. You would think that fans would be on the edge of their seat, but they definitely perceive angle of being at a different level, even though Kazarian doesn't win. I think he definitely leveled up in the process. This match is the best match on the show. I'm sure you agree. Uh, I do. I, I, well, the AJ lethal match was also a great match. We'll talk about just a minute, but, um, I agree. It was a great match and this is the challenge you have when you got, two people in the ring that are both phenomenal 
talents, but there's not a clear distinction between who's a heel and he's a babyface. Even if Kaz had, you know, and, and I agree, you know, nobody, nobody in the, I agree with Dave, nobody in the audience or watching at home thought that there was any chance that Kazarian could beat Kurt Angle in a straight up match. However, had Kazarian been a heel and had a history of finding ways to win, um, the outcome might not have been so predictable. But it doesn't take away from the fact that I think what the TNA was trying to do here um, was demonstrate the quality of the wrestling action within TNA more than they were trying to get a storyline across. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, and in that regard, it was it was a huge success. I think Kaz did a phenomenal job of making Kurt Angle look as good as he possibly could. I think Kurt Angle took every opportunity to demonstrate why he is and was one of the best in the world um, in the ring. And and I think the audience, while they didn't get sucked into it from a storyline point of view because of the aforementioned situation or, or perception between Kaz and Angle, they nonetheless enjoyed it because it was great action. So I, I, I loved it. I enjoyed watching it. I always enjoy watching Kaz and, and Chris Daniels and Kurt Angle in particular. I always enjoy watching. I, I can't recall a match that I've looked back on and watched with uh, any of them and gone, well, that was just kind of flat. Yeah. They're always great matches. Next up is more of that. It's Doug Williams for the X title uh, and Brian Kendrick, the former Spanky. Uh, this is just really, really great stuff. And two back-to-back matches here that demonstrate uh, how great TNA is, sort of bell to bell. Um, Meltzer would call it a very good match. Gave it three and a half stars. Doug Williams retains though. I'm a big fan of both of these guys. I think Doug Williams is maybe born, uh, way too early. If he was born 10 years later, I think it would be a different story for his career and more American fans would be familiar with him. Uh, but they got to see what he was all about this night. What'd you think of the match? I, I liked it very much because I've always been a fan of Kendricks and, and Doug Williams. I think a lot of as a human being and as a performer, He's the, one of the classiest, most professional people I've I've had a chance to work with in my life, um, but it, it was a it was it was slow for me, given what it was, and it was an X division match, right? It was, and and I didn't see anything or enough, I should say, I didn't see enough of the type of action in this match that, in my opinion, just my opinion, don't get all get your fucking panties all twisted up and get angry. It's just my opinion. This match didn't have enough of what I would consider cruiserweight X division call 205 live call, whatever you want to call it. It didn't have the fast paced kind of unique action that makes the cruiserweight division or the X division or 205 live or whatever you want to call it. It, it doesn't, present that unique selling proposition, that USP that you would learn about in marketing 101, your third week in college coming out of high school. Didn't have it. It was a great match. Not going to argue that, but what made it an X division match? Yeah, we've always struggled with that. Uh, next up, we get not such a great match. It's the ladies. Uh, it's Madison rain and Roxy for the knockouts title. Rain's been the champion since April 18th. This is her fourth defense. Before the match starts, she gets on the mic and says tonight she has everything to lose and nothing to gain. So she challenges Roxy to put her TNA career on the line. Roxy agrees. And then rain hits her with the mic to start the match. Um, 
Meltzer would write, you could see the budget cutting here is no Lacey Von Eric or Velvet Sky here. Rain said, uh, I mean, this is quite the, the finish here and they're doing, how would you describe the blood here? I mean, I'm trying to put a delicate way on saying this is a fucking, it was disgusting. It's an unintentional, disgusting bloodbath, but I don't think this was intentional. I mean, this looks clear to me that this is, uh, a bad spot. What'd you think? I don't know if it was intentional. Or not. I'll have to go back and watch it more closely. I wasn't really trying to figure that out when I was watching it. I was probably too overwhelmed with how awkward the match was um, from a physical point of view. Um, I, you know, I don't, I have z- almost zero recollection of Roxy. So she, I must have only been there for a brief period of time before she was on her way out the door. But, and I hate to take anything away from her because she worked her ass off, but she just wasn't ready. You know, for this kind of a match, um, she did some things pretty well. And and other times she looked like a baby giraffe stumbling out of her uh, mother's womb and staggering around on these, you know, legs that went up to her earlobes like she just found them. Um, It was awkward as hell. But whether the blood was intentional or unintentional, the part that turned me off completely is even if it happens unintentionally, don't oversell it. Fuck, right. you're bleeding from your forehead. You don't need to constantly remind me of it and over-dramatize the fact, especially if it happened in real life, because that wouldn't happen in real life. Right. Nobody would do that. Nobody would Shakespeare the amount of blood they have on their face as over-dramatically as I saw in this match. I take that back. I've often seen people do it, and it always turns me off when they do. I don't care who it is. I don't care what legend it's been. When when you work so hard to draw attention to the fact that you're bleeding like a stuck pig, it, it not only does it make it mean less, it makes it so obvious that it's not real or intentional or unintentional as the case may be. Unintentional is probably a better way to say it because if it's unintentional, it adds drama. If it's obviously intentional and you worked really hard to get it and you're working really hard to bring it to everybody's attention so they can't possibly miss the fact that your face is covered in blood like you stuck your head to a fucking bucket of paint then it's not real and it's no longer believable. Now you've gone through all of that work and all that effort, or if it happened unintentionally, now you're even exp- you're blown in even better position because if it happens unintentionally and you're fighting through it, you're trying to ignore the fact that you're bleeding, it makes it more believable when I'm getting sucked into it. But don't Shakespeare it for like six minutes out of your eight-minute match because then I don't care. You're pissing me off. You're offending me. You're making something so obvious trying to entertain me that you no longer entertain me. Damn it, Roxy. You're getting fired up about it, buddy. I'm letting it go. I'm letting it go. The blood was uh, notable. Melsword right. better than most women's matches in either promotion. Roxy was in tears when this was over, but they cut away so as to make the step mean as little as possible. You can't help but get a little dig in there. They're probably cutting away because of the fucking blood. No, they're cutting away because of the blood, and they should have cut away because of that outfit she was wearing to the ring. She looked like a 70s kind of like go-go girl dancer. I mean, it just made her look even more awkward in the ring. I don't mean to sound like I'm beating up on her. I don't, you, know, you I are. Don't, I, well, I sh- – oh, shit, I guess I am. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
God damn. I don't know how Roxy is, but she got buried today. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Roxy. I'm, I'm just being honest. I'm, I'm, and it's just me. It's just my opinion. My opinion doesn't mean anything, Roxy. I'm just one guy sitting in the shadows of Carter mountain in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, entertaining myself by doing this podcast, probably more than you are entertained. And I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, to make it so personal. Next up is something that really sucked. Jesse Neal and Bubba Ray Dudley, five minutes and 53 seconds. Meltzer would say the segment really sucked and started the downturn of the show. Bubba calls uh, Devo into the ring and then Shannon Moore does a run in as well. And Bubba says he's glad Moore's out there because he wants to apologize to everyone. He says he's been acting like a bully and a douchebag, but that's the other Bubba and crowds, the crowd starts chanting, you're a douchebag at him. And he says, Devon's finally talked some sense into him. He had no business treating Jesse this way. And Jesse was doing everything they taught him to do. And he says, Jesse wasn't a failure in the Navy. Like he said, and then he lists all the other things that were hurtful. Anyway, he finally calls Jesse a hero. Shannon Moore leaves, uh, Bubba Devon and Neil hug and raise each other's hands. Meltzer would write. The problem is Vince Russo has been doing these identical swears for years now. And everyone in the crowd knows what's coming. The only thing is, I think when they raised hands, people figure Bubba was attacking him. Instead, they all walk out of the ring and it appears there's not even going to be a match, but then Bubba finally attacks Neil. Uh, Devon tries to attack Bubba, but security holds him back. Bubba's just chopping on him and beating on him. Eventually, um, Bubba has the one, the match one and dreamer comes out and the crowd pops pretty big because this is someone they haven't seen here before. Bubba misses a senton. He gets hit with a spear and uh, three quarters of a star. There's your finish. Jesse Neal gets the win. Five minutes, 53 seconds. And Meltzer says all that early mic work was a complete waste of time. And watching it back this week, Eric, it's hard to disagree with Dave about that. I didn't dig that part. What'd you think? Not for me. I'll disagree all freaking day long. And by the way, there was the uh, aforementioned run-in from Tommy uh, Tommy Dreamer, right? Yep. That, that's that's what distracted uh, Bubba or Bully. That's the uh, whatever the case may be. TNA history. Yeah, one of the biggest moments. Shocked. I'm sure Kevin K was just. It probably took him three days to get over that. He was so I'm excited. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, um, you like the mic work though. I like the story. Okay. Right now, let, let's again. Anybody that listens to the show knows that I have no respect for Dave Meltzer. Oh, I just don't as, as a human being and as a more so even as somebody who considers himself to be a journalist, which is just laughable, but that notwithstanding Dave, apparently, I mean, he gets his, he, he gets his nut watching really fast paced, technical, hard hitting, you know, the Japanese style matches. And by the way, I do too. And I, I don't take anything away from anybody, including Dave Meltzer, who really, really enjoys that type of presentation because I do too, but that's not what works at a major level in us television. It's just not, you have to have story. You have to have characters action without story is meaningless. And I will admit that the execution here could have been better. And 
I think it took a little too long to develop in the ring on Mike. I think if if they would have kept that back and forth on the mic, if they would have dropped about 30% of the time on that, it would have felt more real. And one of the reasons it didn't feel real is because Jesse Neal and Shannon Moore didn't really know how to react to it. They were act, they were they were acting like actors. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. They were acting like wrestlers. They didn't have enough confidence. And um, this is mostly on Jesse Neal. Um, Jesse didn't have the confidence to not overact. And he overacted so much it became so obvious where it was going. When Bully was, for example, while Bully was apologizing, if you go back and watch this on the TNA app, Impact app, I, I hope you do, or Impact, whatever it's called now, I can't Impact remember. Plus app, yeah. It shows up on my iPad is Impact. So whatever that, whatever that uh, app is, go check it out. But all the while that Bully was apologizing, had Jesse Neal reacted in a real way, in an organic way, it would have made it way more believable. Had Jesse first started looking and you could see the doubt, you know, if, if Jesse would have acknowledged it to, to the audience that he wasn't really buying bully stuff for the first, you know, whatever, minute and a half, two minutes of it, I don't know how long it went. And then gradually, as Bully worked harder to convince everybody that he was sincere, rather than going to the crowd, yay, cheer for me, cheer for me, Bully likes me, yeah. Rather than doing that, if he would have appeared almost humble, because the whole storyline here was the teacher and the student, right? If all of a sudden now halfway through, a third of the way through Bully's promo, because it should be done in a three-act kind of a way, that's why I said a third of the way. See see what I do here? Teaching, always teaching. At a third of the way through that promo, had Jesse now transformed a little bit, had his body language changed, had he started, had he gone from, I'm not believing a word you're saying, Bully, you're going to screw me here, I know you are, to maybe this is real. But do it subtly. Because that allows the audience to get sucked into it. If Jesse's not getting sucked into it, neither is the audience. So it's Jesse's responsibility to start buying bullies bullshit. That would be act two of this promo. And then what really lost me, and I was, I would have assumed, well, I was watching it this morning. I would assume that the the the, the screw, if you will, between Bully and, and and Jesse would have happened in the ring as he was raising his hand. I too was a, was swerved a little bit there. I, I expected it, but where it really fell apart for me is I knew the minute they were making their way to the, the to the ring ropes to leave, I knew what was going to happen because Jesse was selling it the whole time. Yeah, nothing about that scene was organic. Nothing about that scene at the end when Bully finally turned on on Jesse felt like it was spontaneous or real. It found like it was poorly rehearsed, and Jesse telegraphed it from the minute. Bully turned around and headed toward the ropes. Jesse was tele telegraphing it. Not because he's a bad guy, not because he shouldn't have been in the ring, not because of any of that stuff, but because he was asked he was asked to perform a scene that he didn't have the experience or comfort or confidence to perform correctly. Had it been done correctly, I think it would have felt completely different. And what Bully was making the kid, Bully was making him 
So I don't know. I, I feel differently, and I guess it's because I feel differently about the necessity of great story. And I, when I see an attempt at a great story that falls short, I tend to kind of analyze why it fell short as opposed to going, oh, that sucked. It only deserves two stars. Well, why? What, what could have been done to make it better? You know, that's, that's, and that's one of the reasons I don't watch wrestling so much anymore. Cause I, I don't watch it just to, you know, drink a beer and have a piece of pizza and enjoy my night. I, I end up watching it to break it down into tiny little pieces and make sense out of things that doesn't necessarily make sense. Were you excited to see some Chinese pro wrestling when AEW announced that they would be featuring Chinese wrestlers on their program? Well, you can watch Chinese pro wrestling right now by checking out middle kingdom wrestling. That's MKW. MKW is the top pro wrestling organization in China today. It's a unique pro wrestling company with Chinese characteristics. It features one of the most internationally diverse rosters in wrestling today from nearly 30 countries so far. MKW has showcased, developed, and promoted wrestling in other countries like Nepal, Vietnam, Thailand, South Korea, with a more particular focus on countries that are a part of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. MKW live broadcasts in China consistently attract millions of fans even often reaching 10 million concurrent viewers. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, MKW was on track to host the first ever all-women's wrestling tournament in China, and they were also planning a Malaysian wrestling tour in the first half of 2020. These plans are still intact once it's safe to return again. Uh, MKW prides itself on cultivating the development of pro wrestling in China and in countries where wrestling is still underdeveloped or not quite widely known yet. By joining the MKW fan community, you too are helping pro wrestling develop around the world. Find out more at middlekingdomwrestling.com or just look for Middle Kingdom Wrestling on YouTube or Facebook. It's also MKW China on Instagram and MKW Wrestling on Twitter. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Well, make sense of this next one. We've got Matt Morgan beating Hernandez by DQ in five minutes and 20 seconds. Meltzer would write Morgan apparently lost his luggage. So he had to work in street clothes. So they did an angle where he comes out with a neck brace on and has a note from his doctor claiming he couldn't wrestle after the speech, uh, before the last match, this was, uh, a bad idea. Hernandez cool. comes out and attacks him, throws him in the ring. Uh, Morgan throws Hernandez shoulder into the post three times by the third time. There's no crowd reaction. Morgan then tries to choke Hernandez with his shirt. That's a fireball offense. Hernandez then throws down the ref for the DQ, stupid, tired, mic work, check, bad match, check, bad finish, check. After the match, Hernandez tried for revenge by kicking Morgan into the post, but Morgan moved and instead he kicked referee, Brian Hebner. They tried to sell it like Hebner had a rib injury and Earl ran down to check on his son, half a star, really not a great showing. I like the little detail of the reason they did the street close thing is because the airline lost his bag, but this is, uh, not awesome. What'd you think? Um, I, I agree. Um, it, it was not good. It was not good for anybody. My note, you know, watching this match is like, who's the heel, right? Who, who do I want to see lose? If, if I can't as somebody who kind of looks for the detail and things that maybe an average viewer just doesn't care about or pay attention to. If I can't figure out who's the heel and who's the baby face, then I'm absolutely certain the general audience can't. And I'll go back to what I say until people just stone me on the streets for saying it. Um, you gotta have a story. 
Yep. You have characters that people are invested in. And there was absolutely no story. There was no heel. There was no baby face. It was just five or six minutes of filler. Well, let's get to a few more minutes of filler. Uh, this time we go backstage and we see a Hulk Hogan promo. He's explaining the wrestler's code. He says, and this is Meltzer's write up. You see wrestling is real, but wrestlers don't actually want to hurt each other. But sting broke the code when he did the number on Jarrett. We've seen a zillion examples of guys laid out for dead with cards placed on them. And all of a sudden the angle is breaking the code. The next thing you know, some guy will be fired for shooting a rubber band at another guy. While the next week they'll try and portray attempted vehicular manslaughter. And that's considered action adventure and fine. Um, so what do you make of the Hogan promo and your old pal, Dave Meltzer trying to make heads or tails? I, you know, I don't disagree with Dave's take on that. You know, there needs to be some logic. There needs to be some consistency. There needs to be a framework. And I think, again, one of the things I love about doing these shows with you, Conrad, is we can talk, you know, we're talking about 2010 now. It's a decade ago. Hell, I was a young whippersnapper of 55 years old when all this went down, right? But there's there's some truth and application into today's product. We see some of the similar variations, maybe not as obvious as this, but we see a lot of variations of things that are legal one day and not legal the next. There's, there's, you know, I, I think this art form, this storytelling platform called professional wrestling character driven storytelling platform is what it is, what it always has been, um, needs to have a certain framework of believability. You know, I know, and I'm not, believe me, authority figures have been done to freaking death. Right. And, and they've not only been done overdone and then overdone again and overdone some more, but in the history of, the genre, there has always been authority figures. There's always that one person that the audience knows can make a final decision about a conflicted situation or, or a controversial situation. There needs to be rules. And I remember as, as much as I have zero fucking respect for Bill Watts, like not, not enough to measure. The one thing I will say that Bill was adamant about when he came to WCW is you have to have rules. If you don't have rules, then there's no rules to break, which means if there's no rules to break, how does a heel become a heel? Right. Buckethead bully that doesn't know much about anything else, but he's right about that. And, and I think we've gotten away from the framework that allows the audience to actually believe that the outcome matters and that the outcome isn't predetermined. We've just kind of gotten away from anything that resembles a framework of logic or, or, or rules, um, or responsibility that now it's just action for the sake of action. And it makes it harder for heels to become heels, which makes it harder for baby faces to overcome a heel. That's actually a heel. And if a baby face can't overcome a heel, that's actually a heel. Then the baby face never really gets over as much as the baby face should. Isn't that simple? Yeah. Isn't it basic? So I, I agree with Dave on this one. Next Write it thing. down. Well, you might want to send him an email. Let him know. Should note the date and time. Uh, Abyss pins Desmond Wolf in 11 minutes and 45 seconds here up next. It gets a dud rating. Um, 
Mouse Ward right. Chelsea was back with Wolf as they did the 30 days had run out deal. Well, it was 24 days ago, TV time and 27 days ago, real time on the best cotter. But I guess the finish of this match required Chelsea with, with uh, Wolf quote, people didn't care at all about abyss. It was the overdone garbage match with a barbed wire board, kendo sticks, and eventually broken glass. Wolf uses garbage can shots to the head early. There's a box of weapons with a teddy bear wrapped in barbed wire. Wolf got mad. It was apparently this is a signal that abyss had been sleeping with Chelsea, or at least he reacted that way. The crowd was so dead here. It was sick. Abyss chokeslams Wolf onto a gimmicked part of the platform. A few people like a dozen chanted, holy shit. But for the most part, it's quiet. Wolf uses a sunset flip power bomb on abyss onto the barbed wire board. His arms were all bloody from landing on the barbed wire, more kendo sticks. Abyss winds up taking a face first bump into broken glass and he's bleeding from that. And about five people start chanting. This is awesome. Wolf then asks Chelsea for her purse. She gives it to him. He opens it up and something is missing. Uh, well, I'm sure she's afraid you might check her cell phone for messages because that's how Matt Hardy found out about Lita. Actually, he was mad. <laughs> There's no brass knuckles in the purse. She then pulls out her hidden brass knuckles, throws them to abyss. He punches Wolf and pins him with a black hole slam dud. So the story is maybe she likes staying with abyss, but in order to get to that story, boy, we, uh, we took the hard way. We got broken glass. We got barbed wire. We got brass knuckles. There's lots of gimmicks and I know you hate gimmicks. what do you think of this match? Yeah, but they got four or five people to go. This is awesome. Boom, 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 boom. This is awesome. Which was everybody's goal in TNA. If we can get them to chant, this is awesome. We have reached the promised land. We are at the mountaintop, the pinnacle of success in the world of sports entertainment all over the globe. Because we got a handful of people who didn't have to buy a ticket to sit at ringside and chant, this is awesome. I fucking hated it. Hated it. The best part of this match for me was Taz. When she when he said, look, it's a hardcore teddy bear. That was the only part of this match that had any redeeming value with regard to entertainment. That was funny. By the way, Taz was pretty good on this whole show. Yeah, he was. And I want to say a comment about Mike tonight, too, while we're on it, because I don't want to talk about this match anymore. It's a fucking abortion. But TNA, uh, excuse me, uh, Taz and Tanae did such a great job on some, so many different levels here. Taz was genuinely entertaining. And Taz was doing, in this, in this particular pay-per-view, Taz was doing what I love a color commentator to do, which was to give me an inside look, a wrestler's perspective about what is happening in the ring, what possibly is going through, you know, one of the performers' minds, what possibly could a strategy be, what impact does something that just happened in the ring have on a wrestler's, you know, psychology or, or game plan, make it believable. You know, yeah, you've got to be artful about it. You've got to create some shit that doesn't exist. That's why it's an art. For fuck's sake. And Taz did such a great job doing that. 
The problem I had with Tanay, as much as I like Tanay, is he kept slipping out of play-by-play and into color. Now I got two guys doing color. I don't want two guys doing color. Tanay's never been in the ring. Tanay's not a wrestler. I don't care what Tanay has to say when it comes to what's going through somebody's mind or what the possible strategy is. I don't care. I care about Taz. I want Tanay to tell me what's going on in the ring. If I happen to be watching this pay-per-view and all of a sudden lose my eyesight, I want Tanay to be able to describe to me what is going on in the ring in a way that makes me feel like I can't see it even if I can't. Let Taz fill in the color. Be a play-by-play guy. Let your color guy be a color guy. Don't be a play-by-play slash color guy because now you're competing with your color guy. It takes away. It doesn't add. It takes away. Okay, enough. I'm sorry. Let's get to the next match. Jay Lethal, AJ Styles. You really like this one. Uh, They go 17 minutes and nine seconds. Um, It's, I guess, what you would imagine. Uh, Lethal's going to come back with a figure four. Styles makes the ropes. Lethal uses a backbreaker, but misses the elbow off the top. Then Styles hits his famous Pele kick, goes to the top, but his leg is injured from the figure four, so it gives out. Styles still manages to climb up, but when he comes off uh, the ropes, he gets into a uh, Northern Light suplex for the pin. And people didn't expect Lethal to win, and the announcers play it up like a huge win. Meltzer would write the crowd was pretty tired, not reacting as well as you'd think. Uh, Flair was selling at Styles for losing, or that's what it says, but he means yelling. And then Kazarian came out. This was uh, a fun match, told a great story. I think a lot of people sleep on Jay Lethal bell to bell, and they just want him to do impressions, and he's certainly great at that. But the guy can go, and we know AJ Styles is one of the all-time greats, uh, and he is some more of your quote-unquote homegrown talent. What did you think of this one? Um, I, 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 I loved it. I loved it. I mean, how do you not love it? It was set up properly. There was backstory. There was an insight into what both, what everybody was thinking, Ric Flair, AJ Styles, Jay Lethal, the interviews and the promos that were done prior to the match were so believable. It was so from the heart and organic and real and non-scripted sounding Jay Lethal did a phenomenal job. Jay Lethal, yeah, people sleep on Jay Lethal. I don't get it. You know, maybe this is the wrestling version of being typecast because when you're good at doing um, uh, impersonations and you're funny and all that, then you, you that's what people want you to be. You're that guy. Right. But I thought Jay Lethal did a phenomenal job in his promos and setting this up and obviously the execution in the ring. I thought Ric Flair did an amazing job. Ric Flair did everything he could to get Jay Lethal over. And so did AJ Styles. And for that reason alone, I love this match. I love, I love the setup. I love the story. I love the dynamic between Flair and AJ and the way that was building and the direction that that was taking, which was pretty obvious in this match. There was just a million things I loved about this including the performance, the actual physical, you know, the wrestling part, um, which I, I, I guess I sometimes sound like I don't appreciate it as much as I should. I do. I did. I will. But the story and the setup and the believability in the promos leading up to it is what I really, really dug about this match. Hats off to both AJ and Jay Lethal. Really a tremendous match. The second really remarkable one on the show. Next up, not as great, but still a good match. It's Mr. Hardy and Mr. Anderson. 
taking on Robert Roode and James Storm. Uh, of course, Robert Roode and James Storms are beer money here. Mr. Anderson is now teaming with Jeff Hardy. They do uh, their best sort of comedic interview beforehand where they're debating what should their team be. And they, I think they settle on uh, enigmatic assholes as their <laughs> name. Uh, the crowd is. A lot of thought went into that one. A lot of thought. <laughs> the, uh, the crowd is chanting, let's go assholes early on, which I think has got to be a first time for a chant like that. Um, either way though, it is a pretty cool match. You know, if you're, if you're big on these performers individually, Anderson gets busted open near the left eye. Uh, he wins cleanly though, with the mic check three quarters of a star. I know you're a big Mr. Anderson fan. Jeff Hardy's arguably your hottest star in the promotion. Um, Robert Roode and James storm are more of that great homegrown talent as beer money. They get plenty of time here too, nearly 14 minutes. A great match, I thought, for the tag titles, or not tag titles, but certainly these are guys who um, are making the tag division fun with beer money. And it's interesting to see two single stars teaming up and what that dynamic might be. And if you're trying something with the enigmatic assholes, what do you think? I really, I really enjoyed watching beer money here, and it reminded me of how good they were at one point as a team. I mean, that was... You know, James Storm has never really clicked outside of beer money uh, uh, to the degree that I'm sure he wanted to um, and, and really had the potential to. I mean, James Storm was a good – had the potential of being a great performer and a great character. He got his got in his own way in some respects, but nothing that couldn't have been handled had he had a little bit of guidance and opportunity. Um, I've always been a huge fan of Bobby Roode. I still am. I, for the life of me, cannot figure out why he isn't further ahead in WWE than he is. I just, he can talk. He can cut a promo. I mean, he's good at it. And he can wrestle um, and he's got a good and he look. Can, and he can work and he's got a great look. He's believable. He's easy to work with. He's got range. Um, I just don't get it, but I did what I did enjoy watching this one. And this was beer money and maybe not at the peak of their beer money run, but certainly close enough to matter. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the match. You know, the, the, the teaming of uh, Jeff Hardy and Ken Anderson was, you know, kind of awkward. Um, not in a bad way. It was just, you know, unexpected and kind of didn't make any sense and a lot of ways, but, um, it worked, it clicked and it was, uh, I enjoyed it. You know, it wasn't my favorite match on the, on, on the card, but I, I didn't hate it. Next up, we've got Rob Van Dam in a world title match. He's defending against sting here. They get 10 minutes and 51 seconds. Um, Meltzer would write, they showed a clip before the match saying that even though he doesn't like sting sting is the number one contender because he got so many votes from the fans. Meltzer would write, actually, he got shockingly few, whatever that means. They brawled on the floor early. Sting was working, wearing his workout shirt. Sting backdropped RVD over the guardrail and whipped him into the barricade. They're four minutes and 25 seconds into the match before they even get in the ring. And then the quiet, the crowd gets quiet. Once they do get in the ring, Sting gets an ear fall after two stinger splashes in the corner. RVD comes off the ropes with a cross body, but Sting moves. And instead he nails referee Earl Hebner. Sting uses a bat shot to the gut, the jaw, and the shin. Jarrett comes out, takes the bat from Sting, and hits Sting with it. After a missed Stinger splash, it's a kick to the jaw and a frog splash. Star and a quarter. 
this had some, some great undercard stuff. The main event though, with two very capable performers just didn't hit for me. Sting in a t-shirt was not awesome. Uh, all the silly interference and stuff with Jeff Jarrett and the baseball bat. How about let's just have a regular fucking match. It just, that was not the story here. I understand why I got a star and a quarter and it was not my favorite thing on the show. What'd you think? No, I agree too. God, this is like, uh, I'm going to have to question my own judgment moving forward. Cause I find myself agreeing with Dave Meltzer three times on one show. It's a little much even for me, but I agree. It was look here, but let's ask ourselves why, why did it fall short? You know, you pointed out Sting coming out in his t-shirt and let's, I love Steve Borden. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, one of the f- small handfuls of, of people that I'm really grateful I had an opportunity to get to know in, in my wrestling career. That being said, he was not at the peak of his game. He was not in the physical shape that he had been. He was getting older. He felt uncomfortable coming out, not you know, in anything but a t-shirt, and that kind of took away. I think the other thing that you know, the other reason this thing started off flat is because what was the issue? What was the story? Who did I really, as a, as a viewer, as a fan, who did I really want to win? I love Rob Van Dam because sure. Rob Van Dam is exciting. Cool. I love Sting because yeah. Sting's exciting. Well. So if these two are going to beat the dog shit out of each other and I'm going to care about who wins or who loses, tell me why. Right. Didn't happen. No story. It's just booking. Rob Van Dam and Sting, main event. Whoa, fucking great. No story. Eh, doesn't matter. Story drives money. Yeah. This pay-per-view comes to an end and the wrestling observer reader poll goes up 65 and a half percent thumbs up 27.6% thumbs in the middle, only 6.9% thumbs down. I actually think they have this right, Eric. I, I mean, I'm probably thumbs in the middle just because I didn't love the way the show finished. But there was enough good stuff on it overall. To your point, when you opened the show here today, I think it's a thumbs up and the overwhelming majority, I mean, they, they're saying the same thing here. We're well into the nineties between thumbs in the middle and thumbs in the up, but you know, basically uh, two out of three fans who watched it gave it a thumbs up and you did too. I'm sure. Yeah, I did. And I, th- I thought it was a solid pay-per-view and there's some, you know, two or three really uh, high points in, in it for me. The Kaz Angle match, certainly um, the uh, the AJ Lethal match. Absolutely. Um, there was only a few moments in it that I really didn't like. And that was Hernandez and Morgan and the Roxy, uh, the Roxy blood. Other than that, I thought for the most part, it was pretty uh, entertaining. I loved listening to Taz and Tanae, you know, with, with the exception of my bitch fest about slipping into color as a play by play person. But uh, e- even with that, and I'm, I'm only saying that because I'm, I'm I just feel like there, th- that is another aspect of the presentation of today's product that doesn't get enough attention. It just doesn't. And, and I wished it would because it would enhance the product for the viewer. I think as producers, you get used to it. You get used to hearing play-by-play in color in a certain way. And you, you, you fail to even recognize where it's not supporting the product in the way that it could. Um, and it gets lost. The art form gets lost in, in the process. So I would really love to hear um, 
our listeners' views on that, if they agree with me or not, or if I'm just being hypersensitive because I used to do play-by-play. But I know what I like to listen to. So that uh, there was so much about it I, I liked, with the exception of the, the handful of stuff, the Desmond and Wolf Abyss thing that I thought was just god-awful, embarrassingly bad. Although Chelsea was hot, by the way. I don't know what I'm saying, you know. Not because Mrs. B's out of town or anything like that and can't hear me, even though I'm still talking really quiet because just in case the walls have ears, if you know what I mean. You know, Chelsea, you know was really, Chelsea, Chelsea was really hot. You know, she listens to the show, right? Oh, God, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Best match poll, hands down, Kurt Angle and Kazarian win. They get 71 votes. Jay Lethal and AJ Styles get nine votes. The worst match, and it's not even close. It's Hernandez and Matt Morgan. That's according to the readers of the Wrestling Observer. But what did you think? We want to hear from you over on Twitter. It's at 83 weeks. And we actually took to Twitter and said, Hey, do you have a question for Eric about this show? Just drop it here. And if you've got a question for next week's show, which we already teased at the top of the program, it's going to be clash of the champions 23 from 1993. Then go follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks. Eric, we got a bunch of responses. There's no way we'll get to them all. Let's try to hit a few rapid fire. Are you ready? Rapid fire. That's that's Conrad's way of hinting to me. Don't talk so fucking much. Okay, rapid fire. Here it comes. Rajiv wants to know, do you like having the ramp go all the way to the ring? What are the pluses and minuses of it versus the arched ramp? Ah, such a great question. I don't like it because it takes the talent away from the audience. I like talent coming through the crowd. I love the proximity of the crowd to the talent from an aesthetic point of view. I love the emotion that it can capture. I love the interaction that can take place that has the potential to set the tone for a match that coming across a raised platform doesn't have. How's that for short and sweet? Rajiv has another great question. Do you like them having the camera up in the rafters with Sting, or do you feel like it takes away from some of the mystique of the character? Good question, Rajiv. You know, we I often talk about this, and I'm going to brag for just a moment. I do believe in all sincerity. I'm not just having fun here, which I normally try to do. I really believe that we have a, a more intelligent, more articulate, more aware wrestling audience on 83 Weeks than anybody can find anywhere else. The, the, our listeners, like Rajiv, ask really insightful, intelligent questions that suggest to me that they have a much greater grasp on the overall product than many of the people that make money talking about it and writing about it. So thank you, Rajiv, for being a member of or a subscriber to 83 Weeks and a listener to 83 Weeks and adfreeshows.com because I've had several conversations with Rajiv over there. Um, I think I think Rajiv is right. It takes away. It's no longer it's no longer spooky. If the cameraman can get up there and have a conversation, well, it's not that scary, is it? You know, if, if all of a sudden it's now, you know, uh, a, a, a production opportunity, just like the, you know, catering is or backstage is or the arrival in the parking lot, the obligatory arrival of the limousine or the Cadillac. If it's just falling into that same category, then there's there's no mystique. There's nothing to imagine. There's no larger than life component to something. And, 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 and it's no longer a great device to enhance a character because yeah, if I will just send a cameraman up there in a lighting crew, it's no big deal. I got to say, I, I really do like the, uh, the camera looking down the angle that you guys had, you know, the camera just sort of shoot down on the action. That was a nice little touch. No, it's a nice touch and it is a good camera angle, but it, it comes at the expense of the mystique. 
I agree with you. It's a great camera angle. It's great, especially by the way, to your point, Conrad, and and to give TNA some credit here, not just constantly beat up on them, um, which is by the way beating up on myself because I was there. Okay, but um, the fact that you're shooting in a soundstage and you have you you have such a limited location list there's just not that many places you could shoot in a soundstage and depending on who else was working because you know tna didn't own that soundstage right they didn't lease the whole thing there was a lot of other productions going on you know in proximity to that soundstage and oftentimes we had to limit where we could shoot outside of the soundstage because there were other things going on so it's not like they had a million opportunities to to create some really interesting shots because you're pretty much confined to that particular 5,000 square foot soundstage or whatever it was bad money. Slim friend of the show, right? Saying, is there another tag team as good as beer money that has never made it to the WWE as a package? Can't think of it. I'm sure. Somebody else could. Well, one of the suggestions not- on Twitter was Harlem heat, but I don't know. Uh, I think you could argue that, you know, Booker T did enough there. I mean, he was the world champ there that maybe that was, I mean, cause he was already a single star, you know, when WCW went down, I don't know. It feels like a missed opportunity, beer money in WWE, but I guess there's still time, but, uh, the clock is ticking. It'll be Pepto-Bismol money by the time they get around to it for crying out loud. I love you for that. Garrett Leeper wants to know, was the idea of turning Jeff Hardy heel at this point being discussed? It feels like you've had sting lay this foundation of that storyline telling Dixie she's been conned by you and Hogan. Do you think there was an opportunity to turn Jeff Hardy heel or would that have been? I don't know how, I mean, he's just another one. He's he's another one of those guys that the, the audience had fallen in love with him so hard for so long that he would have had to set puppies on fire and stomped them out on the way to the ring to get any heat. And I'm not even sure that would have worked. Uh, this is Henry Lee asked a question. We got a lot here. Whose idea was it to drop the King of the Mountain match? And what was your opinion of the match? This comes up here because King of the Mountain had been sort of a staple gimmick match for Slammiversary. And this one doesn't have it. I just hated it. I just, eh, it seems, oh God, I'm going to get beat up for saying this. Oh, I know what you're going to say. I just... I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Okay. If you're listening to this show, if you're driving to work, if you're at work, if you're sitting at home, whatever you're doing, know that when Conrad asked me a question that someone in our audience has, I, I really, really want to answer it in a way that doesn't offend or hurt anybody, people, especially people that are my friends. And I don't want to generalize and become stigmatized because I, I do generalize. I, I don't, but but, but this feels so indie yep. and I mean, small indie and I just hated it because it didn't mean anything. What is a fucking King of the mountain match? What is it? I know what it is. Don't tell me what it is. I know what it is, but what does it represent? What, what do I get if I win it? Other than to say I'm the King of the mountain. I'm the King. <laughs> it's my mountain. Get the fuck off my mountain, motherfucker. It's my mountain. Get off my mountain. God damn it. It's mine. (sighs) 
you for that. Tremendous. My my right? Yes. My right? Yes. Come on. Oh, great stuff, man. Uh, Lee wants to know what happened with Jay lethal. I cried laughing at the uh, segment he did with Ric Flair. He was charismatic. He was a great worker in ring of honor from a fan's perspective. He had it all. He could even go toe to toe on the mic with Ric Flair. This is a question that we get every time we bring up TNA because it does feel like Jay lethal was poised to be a top guy, but for whatever reason, uh, he becomes just a comedy act and. I think over the years, there's been a handful of performers who, um, get pigeonholed a little bit, but we saw him become the man for ring of honor and have quite a run with the world title there. Do you think Jay lethal could have done more in TNA than what we actually wound up seeing without question, without question, failure on my part, Hogan's part, Dixie's part, Rince Russo's part. Everybody's part. How the hell he got out of TNA? How, how the hell TNA let him go? I will never know. He, of all the people, and there were some great talented people. I'm not taking anything away from anybody else, but Jay Lethal probably had more raw potential as a, as a character and a performer than anybody else on the roster as terms of raw potential. He could be believable. He could bring a tear to your eye. He could make you laugh. He could deliver in the ring. He was articulate. He's a great looking guy. He had, I mean, fuck, how many boxes do you have to check? Right. And I I just, it's, it's amazing to me. You know, I don't know why he was let go. I wasn't my, I wasn't part of the process, the discussions or the decision. Um, But man, what a waste. What a waste. Somebody, including myself, should have stopped that fucking train and gone, wait a minute. Yeah, he's funny. But he's more than just funny. And the last thing you want to do is take a guy with, he, he, he had so much potential to be so much more. The fact that he was funny actually hurt him. Yeah. Think about that. That's how sad that story is. Well, we hope that next week's story is a little better. We're doing clash of the champions 23. I'm excited to get back into some WCW and, uh, and chop it up with you, Eric until next time he is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. Don't forget to join us for all the great action going down at adfreeshows.com and pick up a shirt over at 83weeks.com and ericbischoff.com. Uh, while you're at it, you're typing in dot coms. Go to savewithconrad.com too. And we'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Oh, hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you what Matthew in Pennsylvania wrote. I had a great experience at SaveWithConrad.com. I worked with Derek and he quickly answered any questions I had. Being able to text him directly made things so much easier than having to wait on phone calls or schedule meetings at the bank. Being able to do everything from home was extremely convenient. I was in a tough spot with the pandemic going on, but it looks like everything is going to work out for me just in time. I would definitely recommend Conrad and his team to anyone looking for mortgage help. How can we help you? You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. But you do need 10 minutes at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. We're licensed in more than 40 states, and you even get to skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.